Good morning. At this time, um, kids and youth are dismissed. Kids, you follow the train. Youth, I think there's a group going towards the back that way. Um, we are having, this is just a pre-warning. Sometimes I get excited up here. We are having some issues with this mic, so if it pops, just scream really loudly and I'll know. Um, I'm actually serious, but I'm sure one person will follow. But yeah, if it pops, you know, that's not, we're, we're going to hope it doesn't pop. I think it's good now. Um, this morning, I am excited to be starting a new sermon series on the, the book of Malachi. Uh, what, what's interesting about Malachi is one of my earliest memories of the book of Malachi comes from summer camp. There's a guy who used to go around and um, used to tell Bible jokes, right? Like, so who's the only Italian prophet in the Bible? Malachi, you know that one. Um, who is the shortest man in the Bible? Nehemiah. Um, that's another one. I think maybe my favorite one is who's the only person besides um, Adam who's born without parents. Obviously, Joshua, the son of Nun. I could do this all day. Um, but uh, Malachi, who we're going to be studying today, um, is a book that, that I think it's, it, a lot of us know it as, as what it is, the last book in the Old Testament. But I feel like, at least for me and my faith growing up looking at this book, it, it just seems to be like the last thing before you get to the good stuff. I don't know if you've ever done the Bible in a year or read through the whole Bible. But a lot of times when you get to Malachi, you breathe. You know, I'm just going to breeze through four chapters. I got to get to the good stuff, right? And, and so for a lot of us, it's, it's, if we even read this book more than once, we don't necessarily sit with it. Right? It's always like it's, it's, it's keeping us from Jesus, keeping us from the good stuff. So, so our goal and one of the reasons I like preaching through entire books of scripture is it forces us to sit with it. You know, imagine if, you know, I wrote you a beautiful letter. We don't do that anymore, so we have to imagine, right? Imagine if I wrote you a beautiful letter and you only, like, remembered, like, phrases from my letter or you only referred to it when you needed it. Like, one line from my letter, I slaved away and wrote you a whole letter, Right? And you only remember little, little pieces of it. So sometimes I think it's good for us to just sit with the entire text. And, and that's what we're going to be doing. The other thing about Malachi, like most of scripture, is that sometimes the, the, the phrases we remember are usually for something else, right? There's a, there's a phenomenon in, in, in the faith in Christianity called proof texting, right? Where it's like we, we don't really focus on the whole of the text, but we'll pull out verses to support something else, right? So, for example, the passage we're talking about this morning, there's uh, millions of Christians who actually use this passage to be like, see, this is proof that God chooses he loves you. And it's like, but is God talking about us as Christians? Or is he talking about the people of Judah and Jerusalem and Israel? Right? So it's like, uh, there's another one. And when you go to preacher school, right, when they say, like, if you need money, right, you want to tell your people to give money, go to Malachi, right? Because God says, I'll empty the storehouses and I'll bless you, right? But, but is that the core of what Malachi is saying, right? Like, is Malachi writing this story just so 2,000 or probably more than that now? So, like, thousands of years later, Hank can get in front of me and be like, I need you to give more money, right? Like, we do a lot of this proof texting where we're pulling it out of context. So, so our goal as, I, as we go through this series is to, one, not do that. It's to look at the whole story, but to see that this story is for more than just support. In fact, Malachi comes with a message. If you look at the whole thing, one of the fascinating things about the book of Malachi is that Malachi actually means my messenger or the messenger of God. So there's people who've speculated that this book was actually written by an angel. 
and giving to the priest. But then there's some people who are like, well, it's not just like it's an angel, but if you look through the, the similarities between Ezra and Nehemiah, or Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that it's probably the same person who wrote all of them, Ezra. In fact, historically in Christianity even, Ezra and Nehemiah were once one book, right? And then maybe about 500, 600 years ago, maybe a little bit more, we split it up and made it two books, right? But it was always believed that Ezra wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, so some people think he wrote Malachi, he, he wrote Malachi too. But the thing is that I want to focus on is that Malachi, we know, is a priest, is a prophet. We may not know who he is till we get to heaven, but we know he has a message. So as we go through this sermon series, we go through these passages and break them down, I want you to ask yourself that question, right? What is the message of this passage? Why is this even in the scripture? What is God saying to them? What is God saying to me? Because my thing I want to contend as we go through this series is that Malachi's message is worth sitting with, holding on to, remembering. And I think it was really good for them back then, but I think it can be good for us today. Amen? Please pray with me. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the opportunity to, to get into this book to sit with it, to remember, to hear your message to your people then may be as clear to us now. In your holy and precious name, amen. So in the book of Malachi, um, I always try to share this. One of the things I always try to, I go for is um, I, I have an Old Testament professor who really entrenched this in me, so you get it all the time, is that the books were written on scrolls, right? And, and, and just like most of us who read the backs of the book and we know everything that's inside, a lot of times people would open the scroll, read that middle section, and be like, okay, that's what God really wants to say with us, right? So one of the things I always ask is what is the center of the book? What is the, the core message? And a core message of Malachi is, honestly, stop being faithless. Remember, you belong to God in body and spirit. And, and so that's why we call this series, right, Malachi, Faithfulness in Body and Spirit. Because if we are being faithless, we are not faithful. And if we're not faithful, we're not giving of ourselves to God in body and spirit. So that's the core of what we'll be saying. What is God saying to us? What is in this text? But how are we being called here to being faithful in body and spirit? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. I'll be reading the first five verses of Malachi chapter 1. Starting at verse 1. We'll also have it up front. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we may have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. It's a very interesting text to start your letter. It's a very interesting way to get the people's attention. But throughout this passage, at least Malachi's main point is how do we know God loves us? How do we know that God's love is faithful? Have we felt it? Have we known it? Do we hold on to it? A little background in the book of Malachi is that it's written about 100 years after Babylonian exile. As you'll remember, uh, because of the people's sin, 
Because of the people's, whether it was turning from God, idolatry, injustice, mistreatment of the poor, mistreatment of the immigrants, mistreatment of the least of these, right? Because of broken covenant, God says, because of the sin of your kings, because of the sin of your people, I'm going to take away your land. And for a lot of us as, as New Testament people, whatever that means, right, as New Testament people, we don't really hold on to what it means for them to lose their land. The land that was promised them, the land that was a sign of God's love, God's covenant, God's mercy, God's grace. Because of sin, they lose their land. And the Assyrians come and they take the first ten tribes of the northern kingdom. The Malachi's focus is to the southern kingdom, Judah. The, the two tribes that remained a little bit longer but the thing about the Babylonian exile is that these Judah people should have seen Samaria, the northern kingdom, should have seen how they felt and turned, but they didn't. And so after Assyria comes and takes one, Babylon comes and takes the other. Because of why? Because of they turned from God, they broke the covenant, idolatry, injustice. And it's very, very interesting that God seems to look at broken covenant not as a broken contract, but as a lost relationship. And so because of that, they're taken into captivity. So not only do they lose their land, they're taken into captivity. Jerusalem, the city of the king, the city of God, destroyed. The temple, which to them was where God dwelt, the sign of God's presence among them, destroyed. And so Malachi writes, a hundred years after they returned from this Babylonian exile, and so the people have been back a while. A hundred years is a long time. They've been back long enough to rebuild the temple. And that's what you get in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? You get this story of, of God calling the people back, calling them back to their, Lord, their law, and, and Nehemiah leaving another land to come and, and say, listen, we need to worship the Lord. We need to build up our, 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 not just the temple, but the city gates. And you have all these wonderful things that they should be celebrating, so they were long back long enough to reestablish the temple, the city, their relationship with God. But instead, they actually turned out to be back long enough for spiritual decline and moral decay. Yes, they're home. They're not in a foreign land. They're not enslaved or captive. They're not forced to, to worship other gods. Yes, they've rebuilt the life as they knew it, or as I say, as their grandparents knew it. Right? They had rebuilt the life that people told them about. Yes, they had even rebuilt the temple. Yet, for them, they fell into this apathy. Because to them, I'm glad the big things happened, but is God with me today? Is God in my every day? Because I remember that my grandparents also told me that the Messiah is coming. That it's not just about taking me out of captivity, but that the Messiah is coming and the kingdom will be established and there will be justice everywhere. And so this apathy grows from them. You know, if you look up apathy in the dictionary, it's a really simple definition, actually. It's lack of interest or enthusiasm or concern. And so even though God had taken them out of captivity, brought them back to the promised land, rebuilt their life, rebuilt their temple, tried to reestablish their relationship with him, they didn't really care. Or maybe a better way to say it is it didn't really affect their life. And, and so you have this apathetic people, but it's born out of disillusionment. 
It's disillusion because they say the Messiah is supposed to come and he's not here yet. God's supposed to establish justice and I don't see justice. I look at my leaders and they're all corrupt. I look at my country and it doesn't look like the kingdom of God. Maybe some of this resonates with some of us this morning. There's a growing illusion, disillusionment that comes from apathy. The apathy is because we see corruption and sin and destruction and promises not kept. And because they're defined not by faithfulness, but by being faithless, the apathy just grows. Uchi Anazor, who's out of California, a brilliant theologian, says this. The danger for us as Christians is spiritual apathy. Because spiritual apathy is indifference towards the core things Christians should care about. And that is a good summary of what's happening in the book of Malachi. They had grown indifferent Lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern about the things of God. Spiritual apathy leads to unfaithfulness, and it leads to half-hearted worship. It leads to injustice. It leads to corruption. It leads to the people falling short. And I think it's important for us to remember that even after the big things, if we take our eyes off of God, If we start to believe he's not with us, he doesn't love us, he's not carrying you through every day, the apathy that grows only harms our relationship with him. But what the book of Malachi and the prophets will argue is it not only harms your relationship with God, it harms your relationship with your neighbor. It harms your relationship with your world. It harms your relationship with everything you touch. So this is who this book is written to. And what's interesting, too, as you go through the book, as we go through the book, you'll see that the way Malachi structures it is is with a series of disputes. Usually, God will make a claim. So in our passage this morning, what's his claim? I have loved you. And after God makes this claim, Israel will be like, well, I don't really think that's true. I don't really see it. I don't feel it. I don't acknowledge it. And then after that, that Israel makes the dispute, God responds. The other thing that you'll see if you're looking at it thematically or the whole book as a whole, you'll see that Malachi starts off rather negative, right? Like the end of our passage, a lot of people are getting destroyed, right? But as you go through the book, you'll see the shift from negative to positive. And the shift begins when God finally calls the people again to say, I need you to be faithful. I need you to be faithful in all of your body. I need you to be faithful in all of your spirit. But if we go back now to the beginning, the the very first words that we read in Malachi 1 is a prophecy, the word of the Lord through Malachi, my messenger. What's interesting to me is that the word that's used for prophecy there, it means load or burden in over 85% of the Bible. Right? This is one, I think this is two times that that the word massa, which is actually interesting. I did a a lot of work with that, right? Massa meaning burden. That was just my own existential crisis this week, right? But the word massa in the Hebrew Everywhere else, just about 86% of the time, if you want to be technical, 86.3% of the time, right? It means load or burden. But yet it's interpreted in the Old Testament, scribes, but it's a prophecy given to them. But I don't think I want to divorce the two. Because what Malachi is going to have to say is not an easy message, right? Like there's a burden that he's coming. I don't know. Some people have, you know, a fear of speaking in public. You know, the only thing worse than speaking in public is when you have to speak in public and all you have is bad news. 
right? Like a lot of people say, I'm scared of talking. I'm like, but most of the time we have good news for people, right? Imagine you can tell people the worst things of their lives, right? It's like, hey, listen, for 100 years y'all have been terrible. Like all of y'all don't even love God. In fact, everything that's wrong with the world, y'all blame God, it's your fault. Right? Like, like that's the burden, right? Like that's the burden he's going to bring and give. So this prophecy, a lot of times we think about prophecy like, oh, it's from God. It's beautiful, right? But it's a burden that he carries because he knows he has to go to the people and say, y'all, we have been falling short. And so this load, this burden, is, is he has this message to the apathetic. And what is God's response to people who have a lack of care? a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm for him or the things of him. His response is simply, I have loved you. To the apathetic, to the complacent, to the disillusioned, to the unfaithful, God's message is simply, I am that I am. I'm the God who wants to be known, and I'm the God who knows you. I'm the God who was, who is, and who forever will be. I'm the God who's not dependent on anything. I'm the God who has shown myself to be good to you, to be merciful, to be compassionate, to be loving. I'm the God of mercy and grace and justice and love. And then the people's response is like, well, well but how exactly have you loved us? And I want us to sit with that for a second. Because I think it's easy for us to be like, well, how do they not know God loves them? How did they not feel God's presence among them? He had taken them out of slavery, out of captivity, brought them back to the promised land, rebuilt the temple, blessed them beyond measure. How did they not know God loved them? And what is God's response? I chose you. How have you loved us? I, Yahweh, the God who was, the God who is, who God will be, I chose you. It wasn't Esau. It was you. It wasn't the world. It was Israel. Jacob, if you read in the Genesis story this week, or if you remind or you go back there, you'll realize that, that Jacob is the son of promise, the son of covenant. But if you read that story, and you don't have to read it that closely, if you read that story, you'll see that Jacob is not really someone we should call a role model. Like God does not choose Jacob because Jacob is good. God does not choose Jacob because Jacob is righteous. As a kid, I was thinking, I actually struggle with this. And I'm just like, this don't even make no sense. He's a rascal. He's lying. But it's a lesson that God wants them to know. That me loving you isn't because you're deserving of love necessarily. Me loving you isn't because you're so great and amazing and wonderful. Me loving you isn't because you're better than your neighbor. I just love you because I choose you. I think that's a beautiful message to those of us who've grown cold, to those of us who've grown complacent, to those of us who are apathetic when it comes to the things of God, to those of us who are, and honestly can look at ourselves at this point and say, I'm just going through the motions. I think it's a great message that God says, even to you, I still choose you. I still love you. And you know it because if you sit down, and think about it, you will see how much I have loved you. The name Yahweh also conjures up history. God always is going to stand on his resume. 
you know, after college, I applied for a job at a marketing firm, and it was like my dream job, right? Most people don't know this, but I was a business major in college, and my goal in life was to make commercials, right? Like, I was like, listen, if I can work for six months on a 30-second Super Bowl commercial and vacation for the other six months, life would be wonderful. It, it sounds great, right? Like, that, that was my dream. I remember when I applied to this one job in Philadelphia, I only applied, I wouldn't say it was a joke, but I would say it was a joke that I applied, right? Like, if I looked at my resume, like, it was just like summer camp, summer camp, summer camp. No internship, more summer camp. And this was the top, one of the top marketing firms in Philadelphia, right? And I was unfazed, even though I wasn't prepared. Now, by the grace of God, I got the job. Right? Well, that's, a, that's, that's another story, right? But the thing is, I was thinking about it this week, is how many of us can look at our lives and ask and, and literally present it before God, right? And ask the simple question, God, have I been faithful to you? Because I think we'll remember the times, yes, we've been faithful, but also the times we turned away. The times where he wasn't the most important thing. The time where we chase success or career. The time where we sacrifice good things for his best thing. The times where we fell short. The times where we followed idolatry of something, right? Everything other than him. Yet one of the most beautiful things about our God is that his resume always stacks up. There's no point in your life that God hasn't loved you. There's no point in your life where God wasn't working on your side. There's nothing you go through that God hasn't carried you through. That's the resume of the God we serve. We may be faithless. He is faithful. The night may be dark, but he is the light. We may be overwhelmed, but his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There's no point in life that God doesn't love us. Because if God didn't choose us, we not only wouldn't be breathing, but according to this text, we would have the fate of Esau, the Edomites, and ruin. But one of the things that's interesting to me here is that the people are actually bold enough to question God's love. And as I was thinking about it this morning, I thought about the simple idea that this doesn't happen in a snap. It doesn't happen because we wake up and we're like, I don't know if I trust God anymore. It happens because we live in a world that's not as it should be. And sometimes we're the collateral damage. One of the greatest lies of the enlightenment, right, is that everything's getting better. Everything is getting better. And you hear it all the time. You see it in different doses, right? We just assume that because we live in 2023, we're 100 times smarter than people who lived 1,000 years ago. We must be. We're brilliant, right? Like, we really believe this, right? We believe, like, the, what, what Dr. King said, the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, right? And like, we want to believe that things are actually getting better. Now, the, the, the scholars and, and, and theologians and, and academics will debate, are we a postmodern society or a post-postmodern society? The only thing I know for sure is we're a post-Enlightenment society. And one of the fascinating things is ever since the Enlightenment, every generation has learned what? The world is not as it should be. And some people think the bubble burst after the First World War, then we had a second. 
And some people thought the bubble burst after there was actually a nuclear bomb dropped. Some people thought it was maybe through the Great Depression. My generation alone, I started listing all the things we've lived through. And that's just us. I don't even know about Gen X or, or the boomers or, you know, like anyone else. This is just us. I just named four things. That I was like, I, I made a list and I started getting apathetic and depressed. I was like, you know what, let's pick four. Right? Columbine. I was a kid when that happened. That was still a novelty when that happened. And now we live in a world where it seems to happen just about every day. 9-11. Right? I remember where I was. For my generation, like, where were you on 9-11, right? That's our question. I was taking a shower at Messiah College. I was happy classes got canceled until I found out why. But then as you get older, you realize that 9-11 happened in New York City, but there's places in the world that experience 9-11 just about every day. Katrina happened. And we saw, right? And for me, as a, as a young black man, you saw everything you read in the, the history books, right? You see it in person where you're just like, well, maybe the government doesn't really care about my people again. And now we live in a world where natural disasters happen all the time, where you can be in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and scared to go outside because there's fires burning in Canada. Recessions, right? That's my general. We've got your college recession. We want to get married, housing crisis, right? You want to have kids, another recession. COVID. And I'm not saying this hasn't impacted every generation. I'm just saying the world not being as it should be can disillusion us. Because more than belonging to God sometimes, we belong to the enlightenment where we want to think the world is better than it is. Where we want to think things are getting better and moving along, and we want to think that, like, because God loves us, everything should be fine and okay. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying when you find out that everything's not fine and okay, it is hard. And yes, you know Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Yes, you know he's coming again to take you to heaven. Yes, you know he loves you. But you look around at the world, and you just want to make it through today. The apathy isn't born out of spite. It's born out of your world falling apart again and again and again. A few weeks ago, I was in California, and I, I sat at 12.30 local time, but because I flew that day from Pennsylvania, um, it was actually 3.30 my time. It was a chance for me to sit with my oldest friend. And it was beautiful for many reasons. One, we hadn't seen each other for a couple of years. Two, we ate maybe quite possibly the best donuts anyone will ever eat in their life. <laughs> right? It's just as if you ever go to Donut Man in Glendale, California, you got to go exactly at 12.27 a.m. Because that's when they're fresh out of the oven and just like perfectly baked, perfectly toasted, little sugar on the top, fresh strawberries inside. It's amazing. But in the heart of that conversation... I got my heart broken a little bit because I looked at my oldest friend and I saw the impact of an apathetic faith of someone who just doesn't have the energy or the want to or the desire to even be connected to God anymore. And I remember looking at him and I remember thinking, there's nothing I can say to reach you. And I feel really strongly that's how the people in Malachi's time felt too. 
that there's nothing they can say, that nothing the prophets can say or do to reach them. But as our conversation continued, I was reminded by this simple truth. Our God is not afraid of our questions. We are just scared of the answers. Our God is not shocked by our questions. There's nothing you can ask God and God will be like, whoa, wow, this is new. I've been around forever. But this question, just the way you framed it, I've never heard it before. Right? Like, this thing you're going through, I've never seen it before. Like, I just, I, wow, you're amazing. In billions of people who've lived, no one's ever wondered this. I haven't helped millions of people through this. Because here's the truth about apathy. And the truth about enlightenment is this. Another lie of enlightenment is that we have been told and we believe, and it doesn't help us as Americans, right? Because we believe that we are self-sustaining, that we can do it on our own, that we don't need God, we don't need community, we don't need family, we don't need church. We can figure it out on our own. And then we breathe <laughs> or stop looking at ourselves and just look around and we get overwhelmed. Guess why you're overwhelmed? Because you can't do it on your own. You're not supposed to. You can't be reliant on yourself because we're just frail. We might be fearfully and wonderfully made, but we're also frail and broken and in need of God's strength and help. Not trusting God is exhausting. Not putting faith in God is exhausting. Because when we get apathetic and take God out of the equation and all that's left is ourself, there's nowhere to turn. God's not afraid of our questions. But maybe we're scared of his answers. Because sometimes the apathy isn't because the world around us is falling apart. Sometimes the apathy is because we're not putting the work in ourselves. We're not putting the work in ourselves. Your faith is cold. When's the last time you prayed for something other than yourself? God doesn't seem real. When's the last time you sat and just said, God, I want to hear you? I don't know how I feel about church. When's the last time you served within your community? I don't know that God is good. When's the last time you sat and reflected on all the ways God's been good to you? Our apathy must be met by God's faithful love. I tried this last week and I failed miserably. We're going to try it again today. But I want to invite you to do something. I want you to just take a minute. I really think that the one of the ways we defeat apathy, spiritual apathy, the lack of concern or care about the things of God, is to actually just remember. And as every time I go back to the Old Testament, that's one of the messages that jumps out at me. God knows that we tend to forget. God knows that just like they forgot he took them out of Babylon, we forget he pulled us out of slavery and in sin. God knows that just because they forgot that he not only took them out of bondage but brought them into the promised land, we forget that we now belong to him in a new kingdom. God knows that just because he, he, he has their lives all set up and things are good and they established a new temple, we too forget that we are now God's established temple. We tend to forget. And when we forget, 
We grow apathetic. And one of the ways we can combat that, I believe, is to do what the Old Testament prophets screamed at us. Remember, remember, remember. So I want to give you a minute. No matter where you are in this apathy spectrum towards the things of God or towards God himself. I just want you to think of one time in your life that you've been sure God is real. One time in your life that you've been sure God loves you. God's carried you through. Let's take a minute together. We do well to remember God's goodness to us. We do well to write them down, to go back to them. Because when the world happens or Monday happens, it becomes so easy to get caught up in everything else that's going on that God's goodness just gets stuck in the back of our memory. We do well to list it out, to write it out, to remember there were so many things that flood my mind just now as I just sat there for a minute. And I actually think that's a good spiritual practice for all of us. No matter how busy the week gets, give God a minute to just remember. Uchi uh, Anazor, who I quoted about spiritual apathy, says that a lot of times when we think about apathy, we think that the opposite is, is passion, Right? And he feels like passion falls short because passion fades. Passion is something that, that comes up and, and goes out of us. And he even admits, he's like, maybe I grew up in the 90s Christianity where everyone was passionate and now we're all disillusioned. So I don't like the word, right? But he says the word I see throughout scripture isn't necessarily passion, but zeal. So I thought about zeal this morning. And if spiritual apathy is indifference towards the core things that Christians should care about, then, then zeal is being alive to the important things that God cares about. So this week, no matter where you are on the faith journey, no matter what you're feeling about God, no matter how disillusioned you are about the faith, about God, about, about the world, I want you to do these four things this week. Because I think remembering is one way we can back God's faithful love. But I also think there's work we ought to be doing too. Things don't change until we change. 
things aren't going to move along if we just sit with it, right? Like, it's good to sit with it, but you also got to do something. And the first one's probably the most challenging to me, I'm not going to lie, right? So I know my wife is in the front row, so she's going to laugh at this one, right? But the first thing I think we need to do to combat apathy is simply this. Get proper rest. There's a reason you're dragging in the morning. There's a reason you have no energy to get through your day. How can you be passionate about anything, much less the things of God, if you're not sleeping right? It sounds very simple, right? But whatever, however many hours, see for me this part's easy. However many hours you sleep a week, I want you to actually add an hour to it this week. If you only sleep eight hours, go to bed an hour earlier, right? And if you can't fall asleep an hour earlier, that's great. That's an hour you got to pray. And that's probably the only time when you fall asleep praying, God's not going to care. I don't think God cares anyway, but, you know, we, we, we grew up in church. We had, like, this negative that we have. Like, oh, I fell asleep praying. God's mad at me. He's not. Right? But, no, seriously, get proper rest. If everything seems like a fog, like a haze that you're going through, get proper rest. That's the one. The second thing I want you to do is to, to find a way. And for some of us, it might be a, a new way, Right? I don't think we're meant to do this life alone. I don't think we're meant to be self-sufficient because we're not. I don't think we're meant to carry all these things we're trying to carry. So I want you this week to commit to community. And this isn't just my pitch. It's like join a small group. That might be the way you do it. Great. Or it might just be reaching out to one or two people and be like, hey, would you like to grab lunch this week? Or hey, how can I pray for you this week? Or, hey, would you like to get together this week? I want you to find a way to pledge the community because there's so many of us who are trying to do everything by ourselves, trying to do everything alone. We're not made to be alone. When you're the body of Christ, you belong to the whole, and the whole belongs to you. And I say this jokingly, but it's true. Aren't you glad when you woke up this morning, your back didn't say, you know what, I'm going to go at it alone, Right? Or your knees and say, you know what, I'm going to take the day off. I don't belong to the body today. Now, I know you listen to me talk for like 30 minutes, so you might think my brain's taking a day off. But I get you, you know. We belong to each other. Philip, I don't like that. <laughs> we belong to the body. But are we willing to actually pledge ourselves to community in a new, fresh way? And maybe you need to spend some time thinking about what that looks like, right? But what are you trying to do by yourself? that you need someone to just come alongside you and just say, hey, it's going to be okay. Or, hey, God loves you. You're going to get through. The third thing I want to invite us to do is I think there's nothing better that pulls me out of myself than serving others. And I think that's a call for all of us. And again, I felt really guilty about some of this. I'm like, people are going to feel like I'm guilting them to do more at church. We are the church. Right? If some of this makes you do more here, that's wonderful. We're not going to turn you down, right? Like the food pantry isn't going to be like, you know what? I know you want to volunteer in the middle of the day. We don't really need you, right? Like it's never going to happen. Obviously, I would love for that to happen. But all of this is us being the church, meaning it's not just what we do here on a Thursday morning or a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, right? It's everything we do every day in our everyday scenes. How can you serve more joyfully at work? How can you serve more joyfully on your block? How, do your neighbors even know your name? 
How can you serve more joyfully in your family? All of us have family members that don't get along. Maybe you're serving joyfully this week is trying to bring reconciliation there, right? How can you serve joyfully? Get proper rest, commit to community, serve joyfully. And then the last one is maybe the most important one. We ought to be praying regularly. But here's the thing I want you to add this week. I want you to pray for someone new every day this week. Because here's what I believe. I firmly believe in my life, whenever I've been challenged to pray for other people, and God doesn't always answer the way I think he should answer. I don't know why he does that. I'm just like, God, this is what you should do. You ought to do this, right? He doesn't always listen, right? But when I pray for someone else, I find that my God gets bigger, my faith grows stronger, and my will to serve him just increases. Are you willing to just pray this week? There's an there's a, a older gentleman in this church who after we had our, our second girl was just like, I'm going to pray for her. And like a typical church person, I'm like, okay, cool, that sounds great. Kennedy's now seven years old. There's not a time that he greets me that he doesn't ask me how she's doing. And I tell you, that touches my heart more than just about anything else. We ought to be people that pray. We ought to be people that pray. And there's nothing that combats apathy than your dependence on God to come through. And there's nothing that expands you than thinking and praying for someone else. When I was a kid, someone said that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at all the ways God answers our prayers. I tell you what, that stuck with me. And there's a bunch of things I want to do in heaven. Obviously, hang out with Jesus, right? That's cool, right? But I got all these questions for these people in the Bible. But the other thing I just want to enjoy is all the ways the prayers I prayed were answered by God that I did not see. May we be a people who rest to fight the fog, who commune to fight this individuality, who serve to get out of ourselves, and who pray regularly for more people because the kingdom belongs to more of us. Amen? I'd like to invite Pastor Linda up. We're going to close our service this morning with communion. Hopefully as you came in. You were able to receive the elements. If you did not, please raise your hand. There's some people in the back, um, some deacons who will be able to pass them out. So I think Philip here in the front row. Um, in the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. Again, the deacons or someone to be, just keep your hands up. We'll be able to get them to you. Um, as you receive them, we ask that you hold them until all have been served and can partake together. The table of the Lord is, again, for all who believe, all who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. We come to testify, not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come, not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help.
We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we're going to join together in the communion response, um, a scripture response. We pray that out of God's glorious riches, he will strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we will be convinced that Christ is really our hope. We pray to grasp as best as we can how wide and long and high and deep Christ's love is. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. One way that we seek to nurture Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith is to share in the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your faithful love. We thank you that you so loved the world, that you so loved us, that you gave up your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your body was broken so that we can be healed, that you suffered so that we can be set free, that you died so that we may live. We think now of this bread that we take, the supper that we sit at, the celebration that we have, that reminds us of your faithfulness, your mercy, your grace, and yes, Lord, your love. Lord, may we be blessed as we are thankful and grateful and praise your holy name. In your name we pray, amen. Now we'll have the other responsive reading. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. We thank you this morning for the cup. Such a simple symbol, God. We thank you that this simple symbol gives us a glimpse of the depth of your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. And like De Nehemiah, Lord, we think of um, the words that he spoke, that you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Remind us of this as we drink. Amen.
Let's join in the response together. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. At this time, I'd like to invite up the rest of the worship team. We're going to be closing, uh, singing a song that I deeply, deeply love, um, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Uh, as we sing this song, the pastors will be up front. We'd love to pray for you, uh, maybe in response to the service or anything else you've got going on. But as we sing this song, may you be reminded that the apathy that we feel can be not only defeated, but by destroyed by the good love God has for us. That God's faithful even when we're faithless. And just like we said with God at midnight, whenever we're in the darkest of dark, God's light is still there for us. Let's stand and sing together. How deep the Father's love for beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring all of us to glory
challenge for those of us who follow Jesus is that it becomes very easy to, to know about God and sometimes hard to experience God. My prayer for us this week is that the Father's deep, deep love for us can be something that, yes, is known, but also experience. It can be something we feel and recognize the touch. It can be something we hold on to as we remember how good he's been to us. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much that you're not just meant to be known, you're meant to be experienced. That love isn't just something we hold on to in our heads, but something we feel in our hearts and, and live out with our hands. So God, we think of this age of apathy, or we think about our own faith and the apathy that we've allowed to grow and grow and grow. God, help us to combat this by remembering that you're good to us. By remembering all the ways you've been faithful to us. By remembering all the ways you've carried us through by remembering not just the promises you've made, but the promises you've fulfilled to us, for us, and even through us. God, as we go back into our world, we thank you for the blessing that you have chosen us. We thank you for the joy that you love us. We thank you for the mercy that is your grace to us. So Lord, we thank you now. Help us to be a people who rest in you, who belong to you and one another, who pray for others, and who serve in a way like our Jesus serves us. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you, Spirit, for calling us to being agents of your love to our world, too. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.